You know, guys, when you get to be our age, finding the motivation to get back in shape can be hard. It's just plain tough to find a routine and to stick with it. Good news. FitBod is a fitness app that is anything but routine. It tailors your workouts to fit your life, your goals, your gear, and even your schedule, so you can avoid burnout. And FitBod helps keep up your momentum by mixing in different exercises, reps, supersets, and circuits. Best yet, FitBod has over 1,000 demonstration videos, so you can learn the right way to do each exercise. It's time to ditch the boring routines and kickstart your fitness journey. Add FitBod to your workout essentials. Join today to get your personalized workout plan. Get 25% off your subscription or try the app for free at fitbod.me slash Zabe. That's F-I-T-B-O-D dot M-E slash Zabe. Today on the Zabecast, all hail the Patriots yet again. To quote Dan Hicks, did you expect anything different? The key plays that tipped a boring but tight game in the Pats' favor. My thoughts on Edelman, the MVP, commercials, halftime act, and my ale theory in action. All that and more today, plausibly live from Atlanta. So buckle up and let's go. (laughs) Here we go. Monday, February 4th, 2019, the New England Patriots have done it again. So what if it was the lowest scoring Super Bowl game ever of 16 points? The 13-3 final margin was actually the Patriots' largest win yet of their six titles. Wow, wow, wow. This Patriots dynasty is just, it's beyond comprehension, truthfully. Nine Super Bowl visits, six wins. They've done it losing number one picks to ridiculous penalties like in Deflategate. They've done it losing Brady to a six-game suspension for said Deflategate. They've done it with Edelman taking a four-game suspension this year. And, by the way, Edelman coming off of a blown-out ACL. They've done it uh, by taking good backup quarterbacks and flipping them for second-round picks like Castle and Garoppolo. They've taken head cases, malcontents, even guys battling demons like Josh Gordon, who, by the way, will get a Super Bowl ring, and I think he's going to get the winner's share as well. They've done it. They've done it, the Patriots, losing a Pro Bowl tight end to double murder, and they keep going. They get more out of guys, they spot players, they get players, they develop players, and they know how to use players. Unlike any team in the league, it's a joke. They're running circles around everybody else in the league. And they're doing all this by picking dead last in the first round year after year after year. Tom Brady has now won six Super Bowls. And he has led a fourth quarter or overtime drive in every single one of them. He looks just fine. He looks like he can play till he's 45. 
one avocado smoothie at a time. I'm not going to bet against him making it there. Not with the way the rules are these days. The Patriots won this game with an interception from Brady on his first throw. They won this game with no passing touchdowns. They won this game with just nine yards from James White. Edelman was your MVP, 10 catches for a buck 41. And he did it with no threat besides him on the field, for the most part. Aside from Gronk, obviously. And I know they have other receivers, but seriously. Knowing that it's the Edelman show with a sprinkle of Gronk, you still couldn't find a way to stop him? Romo was gushing the entire game, saying it's not just that he's open. He's open by five feet, by leaps and bounds. See, here's the thing. The talk is now pivoted because he has a Super Bowl MVP to his resume. People have already said he he's a Hall of Famer. In fact, the guy who's the guy who said that that I take his word more than other people is Nate Burleson, who hello played in the NFL, knows a thing or two about what it takes to be a great wide receiver. I know I went back and forth in this. I said he was a Hall of Famer, and then I looked at his numbers and I said, Nah, he's not a Hall of Famer. Edelman to me is a Hall of Fame story. And he's always going to be a Hall of Fame kind of guy. Like, look at this guy. Like, to me, Edelman is the wide receiver version of Kurt Warner. Or he is the wide receiver version of a linebacker like London Fletcher. An absolute overachiever. Small school, lowly drafted, not perceived to be as good as his numbers would indicate. A converted quarterback, Edelman. From a nothing burger school like Kent State, he's clutch, he's tough as shit, he's relentless, he's reliable, he's everything you'd want in a wide receiver. And you cannot cover him between 0 and 15 or 20 yards down the field. I mean, he's just that quick. Coming off of a blown out ACL and taking some steroids maybe to recover. The play of the game, to me... I think if he was a first-round pick, he'd be a Hall of Famer easily. But he's a seventh-round pick, and so it might be a little bit dicey. We'll see. He's not done playing either. He is 32, and who knows how many more good years he has in him. I think wide receivers tend to get to about the 35, 36-year-old mark and then start to tail off. Next year, I I would bet that Gronk is going to retire. But who knows? He said he'd make his decision in a week or two. And... It's just amazing. Hell of a player. Hell of a player. And look at that beard. And you know what I think about Edelman whenever I think about him? I, I, I remember when they beat the Seahawks in Arizona. I think it was Arizona. Yeah. And then that thirsty bitch, that thirsty townie that bedded him, takes a photo with him and tweets it out. Just fucked Edelman. No lie. And there's a picture of him with her. Ah. I wonder where that skank is these days. Play of the game was essentially the third straight play in a row, according to Romo, just run with slight different wrinkles. And it was the pass to Gronk that set him up first and goal at the two. The, you see the down-the-field look on that pass, and it was perfect. I mean, it was, it was the kind of pass that only the greatest quarterback of all time could make or not not could but it was 
It was pure Brady. And Gronk made the play. Gronk didn't drop it. The other play of the game uh, was the Patriots bringing the house. Goff panics, throws a balloon ball, and it's picked off. That essentially ended the game right there. And then more impressive to me was the fact that the Patriots were able to run the ball all the way down the field while just trying to you know, bleed some time off the clock, get a first down or two maybe, if possible, and force the Rams to use all their timeouts and the, theoretically play defense and just keep them out of the end zone. They ran it down the field at the end. Amazing. Goff was bad, 19-38. He had Cooks wide open on a broken coverage play with Chung out with his broken arm. It was broken up at the last second. He threw a, a wobbling duck uh, in that play. Yeah, that's the one. It was a, it was just a wobbling duck. It didn't get there fast enough. It didn't look like he was thrown with the kind of zip and purpose it needed. Patriots did run the ball. I said they ran it well. Uh, 155 yards, not too bad. 33 minutes of time of possession. Rams didn't have a single red zone snap. Patriots held both the Chiefs and the Rams, think about this, in back-to-back games to zero first-half points these playoffs. Let me repeat. The Patriots held both the Chiefs and the Rams scoreless in back-to-back games in the first half. The two teams that jacked each other off to 105 points earlier this year. Zero and zero in the first 30 minutes of each of these playoff games. Amazing. Patriots even missed a field goal. The first field goal that was missed all year inside the Mercedes-Benz Stadium. They had a Brady pick that took points off the board. It could have been a lot worse. Rams will be haunted by a number of things, including the not just the uh, Cooks wide open in the back of the end zone of the broken coverage, but also Cooks dropped what might have been a touchdown. Might have been a little bit of an arm grab. By the way, that play right there, that's the kind of play that you people who want instant replay to be used for pass interference, including PIs that are not called, just get ready. Go ahead and see what would happen if on that on the on the Cooks touchdown he dropped. Not the one that were where he was wide open, but the one on TV going from left to right. You'll notice the last second, the DB just sort of kind of grabs his arm, just a little bit, a little bit of an arm check. It caused his arm to just take an extra second to come on up. That play, you really want to adjudicate that play via instant replay. Good luck, because that was very close. So I thought about how many people got this game wrong in terms of it being low scoring. Obviously, plenty of people got it right picking the Patriots minus two and a half, including this guy. Hey, wait a minute. Didn't you just say I'm going to go with whatever Mr. X says? Uh, yeah, I said that. So, Mr. X said Patriots minus two and a half. I said, I'll take it. Well, you can't take credit for that, Zabe. That wasn't your pick. I bet it. I can show you my receipt that I won $50 on the game, bet the Patriots. No, no, the point is you can't take credit for Mr. X's pick. Yeah, but I went with Mr. X. Doesn't that count for something? I'm just uh, I'm just riffing. It's late. I'm punch drunk. Uh, I got to go put myself to sleep, even though I'm kind of keyed up here. 
and then take the grueling five-minute courtesy shuttle from from my hotel room, which you probably saw on Twitter, is right above runway 8 left, 8L, here at Hartsfield International. Uh, take the courtesy shuttle around the airport to what will be no doubt a mob scene tomorrow morning. So of all the pundits, and I read like ESPN printed, or they they put out, they didn't print, ESPN on their website put just a single list of every one of their football pundits, writers, stats guys, former players, TV analysts. I mean, it was just all the way down. Must have been 30 or 40 different names. Pick of the game and the score. And it was a decent split. I'd say it was 65-35 Patriots, maybe 60-40. But the point that I took of it was everyone had the game somewhere in the high 20s, low 30s. 34-31, some variant of that. Nobody said, I think this is going to be a really low-scoring game, and here's why. It's just amazing. It's a testament in part to why the NFL is so great. It's because you never know exactly what's going to happen. It's also a testament to how worthless we all are as filthy pack animals in the media. Nobody had that game as an outlier. They would rather hide amongst the conventional wisdom of, well, I think it'll be high scoring. You predict a low scoring game. If somebody said, well, here, I think it's going to be a really low scoring game, maybe the lowest scoring game in NFL or in Super Bowl history, and here's why, and you laid it all out, and then the game goes 34-31. Everyone's going to go, bah, look at him. He thought it was going to be low scoring, you idiot. Tis safer to be amongst everybody else. And speaking of pundits, another stat from this game, 24 players in this Super Bowl game were undrafted. Undrafted, not even in the top seven rounds. That tells you right there that even though we don't know what we don't know, just trying to call how games are going to roughly play out, even if given two weeks and spending a whole week here in Atlanta talking to people and doing our radio shows and everything else, even the personnel people, they don't, they just don't know. You can't measure heart necessarily, and you can't measure dedication, and it's a cool thing. So here's a couple weird stats. First time ever a team has lost a Super Bowl by the same score as their season record, 13-3, to and the Rams were... 13 and 3. Stat of the day number two, a 17-year-old kid in Boston has now been alive for 12 titles in his lifetime. Six by the Patriots, four by the Red Sox, one each by the Bruins and Celtics. That is absurd. Of course, you really wouldn't want to be 17 because then you wouldn't remember the first handful of them. Imagine if you are, let's see, what's the sweet spot? Let's call it 10, it's called 10 years old. If you're a 27-year-old child, you have experienced from age 10 to 27 the prime of your post-collegiate drunken single days. Going back to when you just could first remember shit as a sports fan, about 10 years old, 9, 10. You've had 12 Parades. Fuck off. All of you. <sighs> Game was terrible to watch. Six for 25 on third downs combined. 14 punts combined. But we did have the longest punt in Super Bowl history, so at least there was that. The early call on Nickel Roby Coleman was a complete joke. 
on just a good play, but it just shows how the NFL is not completely blind and tone deaf to we better call something on this guy if he makes a play like in the previous game. A couple of Saints fans I saw showed up with uh, matching jerseys, or not matching, but I guess dual jerseys to spell out it was Saints 20. It was, they got the number 26 Saints jersey next to a number 23 Saints jersey, a man and a woman, and it said screwed and over. So they were walking around the concourse, screwed over 26-23, the final score of the game with the Rams. Okay, enough already. I saw one tweet, which I think was real. I didn't do much checking, which purported to show a large march through the streets of New Orleans as a protest today over the NFL and them getting screwed by that call a week ago. Oh, God, you just got to let it go, Saints fans. Good tweet at halftime, Maroon 5, Patriots 3, Rams 0. Speaking of the halftime show, I have not seen it yet. I saw the fireworks go off outside the stadium as I was being shuttled in my impromptu golf cart ride, which saved my ass because I went out the wrong side of the stadium because I got terrible instruction from the supposedly helpful stadium people. As to, I said, well, where can I get out? It's halftime. I, I need to leave. And they're like, there's no exits open right now. I'm like, what? But they sent me back over the pedestrian bridge on the west side of the stadium, and I go and pull out my app, Uber app, and it's like, eh, yeah, no. you got to go way over here. We've blocked off this entire side of the stadium. No Ubers. Okay. So I saw the fireworks on the outside. I did not see the show itself. Everybody killed it. I think this was – and killed it in a bad way. I could feel this coming because I don't know many people who are big Maroon 5 fans per se they obviously are a successful enough group and Adam Levine is successful enough and well-known enough but who's really a super fan it was a pretty weak halftime act and it was a weak act because the way the music industry is evolving it's harder and harder to get so-called big acts that are not old acts like the who or Bruce Springsteen or something like that and they've already done the Super Bowl they've They've played all the big names before. So it's harder and harder to get an act and several high-profile musicians saying, I'm not going to play it because of Kaepernick, hurt the NFL. It'll be interesting to see going forward who they can get to do the halftime that might actually surprise people. Bruno Mars was a great one because many idiots like me said, Bruno Mars, this guy, who's this guy? This guy shouldn't be doing the halftime show. Oh, wow. What a performer. Phenomenal. The commercials, I still need to see all these to evaluate. I know that the NFL 100 was great with all the ex-players. The only thing I just did not care for, the needless pandering to girls. They just had to put a girl in there to catch the football in the banquet hall and say defiantly, you want it, you got to take it from me. Enough already, NFL. We get it. You want to both be seen as positive towards women and respectful 
And also you want to send this message of women empowerment. Yay. Just stop. It was a perfect spot with all ex-NFL players. The girls, you're like, oh, great. Okay, what, what what's she doing here? Hello? The Bud Light Game of Thrones crossover was epic. I did see that. Uh, the Hyundai commercial was cute. Uh, Amazon with uh, Harrison Ford's dog ordering all the food with the uh, Alexa collar, which I don't think exists on a dog, was funny. Dosecki's guy going to Stella Artois, good. And then there's a bunch of other ones that apparently completely sucked. I'm going to have to take a look at those tomorrow while I'm waiting at the airport for three hours. So, yes, I did ail it at halftime. Some people don't get it, and they're mad at me. I can't believe it, man. So many people would kill to be at that game, and you left? Well, I'm in the media section. I'm not there with buddies. It's not my team's. So, yeah. And, by the way, I had a podcast to come home and do and put out for you guys. So I did. I left early. And I ailed it because, well, it's sort of my shtick. I figured I should actually ail the Super Bowl. Also, there was uh, uh, Dr. David Chow, who we had on Friday on the show, tweeted out, pure comedy, our bus driver is now lost, and people on the bus are trying to map quest him directions. It was the media bus back to their hotels. My bus driver also got lost going to the stadium, even though I was the only person on the bus. They had media shuttles, big, huge buses, not just miniature shuttles, but I mean a full-sized tour, a coach. And... They, were, they left for the stadium on the hour starting at like 12.30, 12.30, 1.30, 2.30, I thought about getting on the 3.30 going, yeah, let me get there early. You know how it's going to be. And I go, nah, you know, 4.30, it's a 20-minute drive downtown. I'm going to wait. I'm going to lay back. By the 4.30 bus, nobody was on it. I was the only guy. And the, the, the highways were empty. And I'm like, this is great. We're going to get here in basically no time at all. And then, boom, my bus driver is almost knocking over light poles while holding printed out directions. Printed directions. I'm like, so you haven't practiced this route? You didn't already take somebody today? Very nice lady, but no, she uh, did not have that. So I could have gotten home, I believe, entirely before, like I waited till it was zero, zero, zero on the halftime clock, got my stuff together calmly. I didn't run out of the stadium, stopped to take a quick picture, went all the way down, out of the stadium, went the wrong way, over the pedestrian bridge, walked and walked and walked almost a mile, then got a golf cart ride over to the other side of the stadium, thank God for that, then got into a cab, then went home, and I only missed literally three and a half minutes I think three and a half. Well, I was in my hotel room by eight minutes and change. You saw that on Twitter. And I will give a ale coin to whoever has a tweet verifying they got as close to the exact game time left. But I was in my room with eight minutes and 35 seconds left in the third quarter. So I could have made it almost all the way. And I enjoyed watching in my hotel room, to be honest. So there's that. Dave Portnoy, arrested. Unbelievable. 
Unbelievable. Goes to the game wearing the same silly mustache, is tweeting out how he's at the game, and then security finds him and picks him up, handcuffs him, arrests him. He cuts this great promo once he gets out of the NFL's holding tank after posting bail. I guess he he and PFT Commenter are banned not just from Media Day at uh, the Super Bowl, but they can't go into the game itself. And I guess the NFL can control that. So we'll see how much actual legal trouble he's in. But it was it was a hell of a stunt. I got to hand it to him. If you want cheap and free publicity, there you go. And of course, the Patriots win again. And then Portnoy cuts this wrestling like promo into his phone just being the cockiest chowd ever, dropping F-bombs and and calling out Goodell. It was great. People say, God, I don't know why. Why do you like him, Zabe? He's such an asshole. I'm like, yeah, and that's his act. And actually, it's probably how he is in real life. I don't know. I've never met him, but it doesn't matter. I don't need to know him in real life. I just look at him through the prism of you know the content they produce, and I'm like, you can't beat him as a character. It's hilarious. The streaming was spectacular on my iPad. I mean, the clarity. My God. And I was streaming over cellular data. You got enough data for that? Yeah, I do. Oh, I get the data. I get all the data. It did pixelate at times. It did freeze up once. But I was pretty impressed both in the stadium and in the cab going home that I could get the game that clearly. Tracy Wolfson nearly got trampled afterwards. This is what I don't get. So the NFL spends all this money on security and whatnot and credentialing. Of course, they couldn't keep out Barstool with their credentialing process on media night. And then... They also couldn't, you know, the, the, the security finds Dave Portnoy to drag him out of the stadium, but they can't some somehow secure a simple network partner and quarterback post-game interview. Poor Tracy Wilson, crushed, and she was wearing that white suit. And you see her on the overhead shot, and you're like, okay, there she is. And she's like, oh, hold on, everybody, hold on. And she's, she's a tiny lady. And then all of a sudden you're like, Where'd the white suit go? Where's the wolf? We've lost the wolf. And she finally got back up. You don't need 20 people with Nikon 5Ds or Canon 5DXs taking pictures of a big media scrum. Why the NFL doesn't say, look, we've got two camera crews and three still photogs that can be on the field after the game is done. That's it. And we will let the still photogs release the photos for pool use for everybody to use. Same thing for the footage. And that's it. And we're going to let the players and the coaches pay their respects to each other, celebrate, hug each other, say, I love you, man, and not have ridiculous scenes like this. At least that's the way I'd do it, but not my league. And with that, I'm going to bed. Actually, with that, I'm going to turn it over to the rest of today's Abecast, which was recorded earlier today, but will be every bit as entertaining. In fact, if not more so, more entertaining than a the lowest scoring Super Bowl ever. The Patriots win again. Duck boats, downtown Boston, again. Will it ever end? I don't know. 
I don't know if I'd pick against them next year. So away we go for another season. Lord Football, you are still great and beautiful and unpredictable, and we will miss you. Interesting piece in the Washington Post about how the Super Bowl game story in major newspapers around the country is dying. And that it may go by the way, it may go the way of the dodo bird sometime soon. You know, a game story in the paper, a story about the game. The New England Patriots finally succumbed in their dynastic reign once again to the Los Angeles Rams by a score of 35 to 31. It may well mark Brady's last game as he was harassed and sacked six times and threw three interceptions. Whatever. Blah, blah, blah. And then there's a game story with a quote here from a player or two, stat here, big play here, and there you go. In the olden days, the game story was the only way to know what happened in the game. Many games were not televised. And even the big games that were televised, people would like to pick up the paper the next morning and read about the game and get a quote or two because that's the only place you could read about the game and see a quote or two. Nowadays, of course, in the digital age, stuff is disseminated immediately. People see the game or they see highlights of the game or they already get recaps of the game or they watch, look at the box score of the game. Do you really need a game story? I don't know. I kind of, I don't like this going away. I don't like things going away. I don't like it. I think a good game story with a good narrative, well-written, on deadline, one of the hardest things to do in sports journalism is worthwhile. But apparently these major newspapers like the Boston Globe and others just aren't doing it. Now, when it comes to a game story for a regular season game in the NBA or Major League Baseball, remind me next time I talk to Drew Olson say, what was it like writing game story after game story after game story for a Brewer team that was one of the worst in baseball? That has to be a real exercise in professional devotion to be able to go, okay, I'm going to put my full effort into writing this killer game story. The NFL Honors Show was Saturday night, and it's a good show. It's the ninth year now they've done this, a Academy Awards-style show featuring NFL players and best moments and all these awards. I like it. It's a good addition. Never been to it, but I like it. That said, I don't know why the NFL doesn't do the winners live. I don't know why they don't announce. I I don't know why they announce ahead of time, or it leaks out ahead of time, that, oh, Patrick Mahomes is the MVP. Oh, so-and-so is the comeback player. So-and-so is the rookie player. My guess is, and this is just a guess, is that they want to make sure they tell certain players that, yes, you have won this award, so you need to show up to accept it. They don't want a bunch of – I think a lot of players would say, well, if I'm not going to win, then why should I show up and waste my precious Saturday night before the Super Bowl where I could be earning money, hosting parties, doing meet and greets, signings, if I'm just going to sit there and finish fourth in MVP. That's probably why they don't do it live. But it'd be nice if you at home could say, I got nothing going on a Saturday night. Let me go ahead and uh, watch the NFL honors and see who wins whatever awards. Just an idea. That's all I'm saying. Thank God I'm not the only guy that thinks this. 
Andy Nesbitt, writing for, for the win, USA Today, writes, it's time for the NFL to do the right thing and move the Super Bowl to Saturday night. Amen, hallelujah. He points out, as we all know, Sunday night, tis a school night. And the NFL, the Super Bowl used to, I feel like an old man here, come hop up on Uncle Stevie's knee here. Super Bowl used to go off at 3.30 in the afternoon on a Sunday. Got pushed later and later and later. Now it's a nighttime event, 6.30 East Coast time. And it's not up against a holiday Monday. So you want to have a Super Bowl party? Oh, yeah, bring the kids. It'll be great. Oh, yeah, well, my kid's six years old. He's going to get cranky at 10 p.m. Plus he's got, well, and then my 10-year-old's got to go to school and I've got to go to work. Super Bowl Saturday is something I proposed years ago. And it makes so much sense and would be so great for the fans, the NFL will never do it. Because the NFL doesn't care about you and I. They care about themselves. If you're a big muckety-muck with the league, if you're a big shot, you know, CEO or business guy or entertainer or celebrity, what's Monday after the Super Bowl to you? Just take the day off. I'm off. Yeah, I'm not showing up to work today. Or their work, if you're the league, if you're league guys, will be, yeah, I'm not really doing anything money anyway. Saturday's Super Bowl will be so good because we could watch the game, we could all party deep into the night, and then we could wake up late on Sunday, go get some breakfast, and talk about the game and relive the game and watch the game again. There could be a great after party on Sunday. I think there's a reason why most weddings are Saturday night. Because on Sunday, there's usually an after party for, you know, a breakfast for those that traveled from out of town that were part of the wedding and you wake up late and you get your breakfast. It makes total sense. Of course, the NFL thrives on any given Sunday and Super Bowl Sunday, and they know that TV viewing numbers are higher on Sunday. And even though it is the Super Bowl, and you would say, well, why would why would just one night earlier in the dead of winter make much of a difference? Well, I think it would it would put a little tiny dent into that TV rating, which the NFL worships. But it makes all the sense in the world. It would be totally awesome, and it's never going to happen. Now, the NFL would love to push to stretch the season longer and to get us all the way into the middle of February and President's Weekend, which many people, but not all, have that Monday off, and then that'd be a pretty good deal. But to get there, I think would be, I don't know if that's going to happen in my lifetime because you're talking about extending the season for a union that's hostile to the notion of it, and you're talking about possibly playing outdoor football games in the kind of polar vortex hellhole that we saw over the upper Midwest this past week. Good luck with that. As I'm sure you have heard, there's a number of artists who publicly and vocally said, I'm not playing the Super Bowl halftime show, likening it uh, akin to I ain't going to play Sun City back when apartheid was still in place in South Africa. And there was a resort called Sun City that would attract major musical acts to come play. And a number of acts said, you know, I'm not playing there while there's still apartheid. 
these musical acts this year have stood up and said, because of the Colin Kaepernick situation, the fact that he's not in the league and that there appears to be an effort to essentially blackball him, I'm not going to play the Super Bowl halftime show. Okay. Cardi B, who is one of the top pop stars of the moment, Cardi B was one who came out and said, I ain't playing the Super Bowl. She said, my husband, Offset, he loves football. His kids play football. It's really hard for him. He really wants to go to the Super Bowl, but he can't go to the Super Bowl because he's got to stand for something. You have to sacrifice that, she continued. I got to sacrifice a lot of money to perform, but there's a man who sacrificed his job for us, meaning Kaepernick, so we got to stand behind him. Okay? Who was all over Atlanta this weekend? Cardi B. Well, wait, whoa, wait a minute. I thought you said you weren't going to be part of this. Cardi B not only was in Atlanta and did a concert or two and an appearance or two, but she was actually seen dancing, impromptu dancing with Robert Kraft, owner of the New England Patriots, a team with Tom Brady that is one of the more vocal and outspoken supporters of President Donald Trump. Hmm, interesting. Cardi will also appear in a Pepsi Super Bowl commercial alongside Little John and Steve Carell and is hosting a party this week. So she was asked about this, like, so how does this work? You're not supporting the NFL because of Kaepernick, but you're here in Atlanta? Here's what Cardi B said, quote, I hear people saying like, oh, y'all are saying all this stuff about the Super Bowl, but you're doing all these parties. And it's like, well, if the NFL could benefit off from us, then I'm going to benefit off y'all. Y'all make the most money off our people. Why am I not going to take advantage of y'all and take money from y'all too? Because of y'all, we are getting these parties. Okay, thank you. (laughs) Y'all. I know. I should not go to one Cardi B for eloquent or deep-thinking intellectual consistency. But I guess that's her logic. I'm still sticking it to the NFL by taking a public stance and painting them as the bad guy while turning down a lot of money. Remember, she sacrificed a lot of money by not playing the halftime show. By the way, I think the NFL has moved to a point in which they don't pay the halftime artist much money at all. I think they pay all the costs associated with them performing. And they wanted these halftime acts to pay them. The NFL did, you know, at no cost to the league. So I don't think she turned down a lot of money to not play halftime. And I think she probably made that money up by being in the Pepsi Super Bowl ad, by doing a concert, by hosting a party. I think Cardi B is going to be just fine. Football is a dying sport. Oh, you didn't know that? Well, not exactly, but some people are, of course, writing those type of articles. Football participation is currently declining. That is not in dispute. Patrick Hruby, H-R-U-B-Y, good guy, good writer, uh, used to write for Deadspin, I believe. Now he's writing, or he's written this piece for The Guardian in the U.K., Headline, as the Super Bowl approaches, is high school football dying a slow death? Goes on to point out that the National Federation 
of state high school associations, high school participation in the U.S. is down 6.1% over the last decade. That's down from 1.14 million players in 2008 to 1.07 million in 2017. 10-year span, 6.1% decline. It's occurred even as overall high school sports participation has increased by 5.9%. So overall high school sports participation up 6%, football's down 6%. That would be the counter-argument to, well, these kids today, these damn millennials, they don't go outside, they don't play sports, they're on their phones all the time. Uh, over the, uh, the, okay, in addition, youth, youth, tackle football, the feeder system for high school football has seen a 17% drop among children ages 6 to 12. It's very young to be playing football over the past five years. So is football dying? Well, it's this reminds me of the people that write about how golf is dying as a sport. And they'll cite the number of golf course closures or they will cite the number of sales uh, or the total volume of equipment sales. And those are certain elements of the game of golf. And it's a certain snapshot about certain trends in golf. But to say a sport is dying, even sports that are really considered dead, like, say, boxing and horse racing, they're still alive. They're just greatly diminished from what they were at their peak. And when it comes to football, football is still king. Football, according to Ruby in the story, does remain the top high school sport overall and the most popular among male athletes. More than a million boys played football in 2017, nearly double the number that participated in outdoor track and field or basketball, and greater than the amount who played baseball and soccer combined pause to let that soak in more boys played football in 2017 than almost double the amount of outdoor track and field double the amount of basketball and more than baseball and soccer combined baseball and soccer have comparable roster sizes soccer is 11 on 11 and baseball is nine on nine So you're getting closer to what football is in terms of size. Basketball is a lot less, obviously. Spectator interest is also healthy, writes Ruby. ESPN broadcast 18 high school football games across three of their networks last fall. In Texas, nine high school stadiums costing between $20 million and $70 million were built over the last decade, (laughs) while another facility was renovated for $33 million. These are high school football stadiums I think football at the high school level is definitely shedding participants from regions of the country mostly the northeast in which there's not the culture of football like it is in the south or in Texas but for football to actually be in any danger whatsoever it's just not going to happen in my lifetime because what what football is doing I believe it's shedding the least interested participants in the game. In other words, kids from typical nuclear families, suburban, upper middle class families, where the mom and dad are like, 
do we really want Junior risking getting a concussion? Do we really want Junior breaking his leg? Do we really want Junior blowing out his knee? Should he play this sport? And their, their answer is no. But down south, where football lives and breathes and is a part of life itself, Georgia, Florida, Alabama, Louisiana, Texas, Mississippi, and others, no, football's not going anywhere. And it won't go anywhere in my lifetime. And we have so many kids and so much talent that is being produced from those states as well as California and out west that it will supply all of our Division I colleges and Division II and Division Three, and certainly all of our NFL needs for as far as the eye can see. Here in Atlanta, there was a great boondoggle where they were they built a, a bridge, a pedestrian bridge, that was made specifically for this event. A pedestrian bridge that was going to connect the MARTA train station to the stadium, and it was going to let pedestrians walk effortlessly and safely over four lanes of highway, apparently, or four, four lanes of some road, side road, and not have to stop traffic. The bridge was slated to cost something like $12 million. It ended up, shocker, costing $23 million, almost double. And then two days before the Super Bowl, the NFL security people or the FBI or the SWAT teams or Department of Homeland Security said, ah, yeah, we're not going to let pedestrians use the $23 million bridge. Why? They say it's a security risk. Here's the kicker. As if it wasn't bad enough that a $23 million bridge built just for one football game at no cost to the league, it's bad enough that that won't be used before the game. Get this. They say that after the game, they will allow fans to use the bridge. Going into the game, they said they would only allow media members and other credentialed people with the league to use the bridge. I guess because that means there wouldn't be very many people there. After the game, yeah, let everybody go across. So my only thought was the NFL looks at it like, okay, here's a bridge where there's going to be a lot of people in a confined in a confined space, which would present a very juicy target pretty far outside the security perimeter of the stadium for somebody to perhaps cause some mayhem. And we can't have mayhem go on before the game because, God forbid, somebody blows up, shoots up, or otherwise attacks the bridge full of pedestrians, then the game is going to be interrupted. And as you know, era, we can't have that. We have major corporations buying time for the Super Bowl. The broadcast, everyone at home, across the country, around the world, can't have that. But after the game? Oh, yeah, no. Blow that fucking bridge up. With, with 2,000 people on it, we don't give a shit. Because we're going to go... Wasn't us. Like, well, we can't we can't protect everything. It's just, I'd say it's amazing, but nothing amazes me anymore with the NFL. Johnny Miller called his last golf tournament on Sunday for CBS. Actually, Saturday. Saturday. And when I first heard that, okay, Johnny Miller's going to bow out Saturday, that's odd. Why wouldn't he do it on Sunday? And now I know the answer why. It's that. All the tributes to Johnny Miller and all the goodbyes from everyone on the NBC crew 
took up a big part of the broadcast. And I think Johnny or the network, or they both said, well, we don't want to take away from the actual golf on Sunday, so let's do this on Saturday. It was very well done, uh, very heartfelt. The Roger Maltby goodbye was especially touching. You know, Maltby, just this cartoon character of a golfer, former golfer turned broadcaster, just choking up and blubbering. (laughs) Johnny was great because Roger Maltby and Johnny Miller have been sort of the, the, the two old men in the balcony, Muppet style, of the NBC broadcast on golf for years. And he's been the only guy that has really pushed back on Johnny Miller when he had some crazy idea or theory as to what's going on out there. So that was nice. It was well done and heartfelt, and I don't dispute any of it. But I just personally, as a golfer and as a golf fan and as somebody who listens to golf broadcasts with a critical ear, I've always thought Johnny Miller was terribly overrated. Yes, the casual golf pundits and the non-golf community loved Johnny Miller because he would (gasps) dare to say that certain players choked and that he was unflinching in his commentary on the modern tour player. Okay, I'll grant you that. But Johnny Miller, to me, never did two things that I think the best analysts do, besides just being brutally honest and saying when a guy chokes. One, they don't tell me about how tour players think. Johnny Miller never let me inside of, okay, here's what I think he's thinking right now, or here's how he wants to approach this shot, or here's where he at, here's where this player is at at this point in the tournament. I never got that from Johnny Miller. Secondly, I never got that Johnny Miller really loved being there and calling these tournaments. He always came across as a bit of a bitter beer face. His voice was just so so quiet, timid, and just you know tight and and buttoned up and and, and reserved. It was not a real broadcaster's voice. And I just never felt like he had any joy in doing the golf broadcasts. He came across, in other words, as a curmudgeon. Turns out Johnny Miller, according to everybody who knows him, is is a really nice guy, is a, a so-called sweetheart. He's a very humble family man. He's Mormon. Um, it's so weird that who he is in his personal life, never really came across on air because I think most people would look at him like, who is that bitter old grump of a guy who was once really good on tour and once really skinny with long flowing golden hair and now look at him. He's a big, blocky, overweight old man. Hey, Zabe, that sounds like you. Shut up! Of course, I never had the golden flowing locks. And a lot of times I felt that Johnny Miller would say things on the air and would have theories about, oh, yeah, he hit it with one groove left on the club. And you're like, how do you know? You, you don't know that. You're just guessing at that exactly. To me, Azinger is going to be fantastic. I think the best combo ever in the booth was briefly when ABC had both Faldo and Azinger. Faldo has since become a bit of a... I don't want to say a, a, a league guy because there is no league, obviously. Faldo has become a bit more timid as he's gotten bigger and bigger. Azinger, though, he'll let it rip. 
Azinger was the guy that freaked out when Ben Crane was playing so slow and Rory Sabatini at the tournament in D.C. at Congressional played through his own playing partner. That was one of the all-time amazing moments in television sports broadcast history. He's like, wow, that is rude right there. But Azinger seems to love the game, and he seems to love calling events, and I think he's going to be a great replacement for Johnny Miller. But tip of the cap to Johnny Miller, I always thought he was overrated, frankly. wasn't really my cup of tea. I was always a Ken Venturi guy and then a Fowler guy and a Zinger guy, and Johnny Miller just didn't do it for me. But hell of a career, hell of a run, and a good send-off on Saturday out in the desert. So how about our governor? In the great state of Virginia, the Commonwealth of Virginia, Governor Ralph Ralph Northam. Oops, I might have had a picture of me either dressed in blackface, bad, or in a Klan outfit, worse, in my yearbook from medical school 35 years ago. Whoops, guess we should have vetted that. Maybe they knew this photo was out there, his campaign, or his people. I, I, I can't believe that uh, the opposition research team for, who, who ran against him? Ed Gillespie, I think. I can't believe the re- Republican opposition oppo research guy, the oppo guys, didn't find this and then hold it until the last possible minute before the election and said, boom, you want to elect this guy? As our governor, I'd be super. If I was Republican, Republican state Republican Party of Virginia, be like, how do we not have this before he got elected? Hell, it might not have mattered. Virginia, the Commonwealth, is trending blue, if not purple, right now. So what are what are we gonna do? You got a guy in Ralph Northam, who at first apologizes for this photo. And then the next day comes out and says, wasn't me. Pulls the Eddie Murphy, as I like to call it, from the Eddie Murphy Raw stand-up routine where a woman can catch you cheating on her with another woman in your house. And she says, I can't believe this. And he runs after you and says, wasn't me, baby. Wasn't me. I know you'd think it was me, but it wasn't me. (laughs) That's Ralph Northam's tactic, I guess. And he says he's not leaving. He's kind of going Jordan Belfort in Wolf of Wall Street. I'm not leaving. The show goes on. It just shows you the embarrassing, pathetic, and thirsty nature of politics that this guy, Ralph Northam, can't say, you know what, look, it's bad. It, it was, it's unfor- it, It's bad. This was bad. This was wrong. I apologize wholeheartedly. And yes, I will step down, not because one photo should define a guy's life. Hell, he's a Democrat after all. By the way, can you imagine a Donald Trump supporting Republican? If this a photo like this had come, jeez, oh, oh boy. He has uh, he has had a great career as a military doctor, and for helping. Uh, minorities of all causes, uh, minorities and all causes, over his career. So should one photo ruin him? In theory, no. I mean, no, but yes, but 
this is kind of bad, but somebody put it in the yearbook and they thought this is cool. I, even though it was 35 years ago, I think my senses back in the early 80s when I was a teenager would have said, no, you, you don't dress as a Ku Klux Klansman. That's insane. That is, that is a hate group even before hate groups were defined as hate groups back in the 80s. It's like, no. And, of course, the black faces, you should know that, even in 1980-whatever. But he won't leave. He won't, he won't resign for the good of the Commonwealth because I spent all this money, I spent all this time, I won this election, I, I, I got to stay. How can he effectively govern with this hanging over his head? How can he be taken seriously? It just show it just really it makes you disgusted with politics that this is not an easy resignation for the good of the state of Virginia that he's going to cling to this position. It's not even that great of a job. I mean, governor in Virginia is term limited, term limited to one four-year term. So it's it's not like the greatest gig ever. The governor does have certain powers, but they're not that great. In all my years growing up and living in Virginia, the governorship was always looked at like, yeah, yeah, you can run for that. I mean, it's a nice thing, but whatever. What are you going to get done in four years? Yet, he won't leave. So stay tuned for what happens next. Maybe they'll find the real clan costume guy and the real blackface guy because he says now, wasn't me. Wasn't me. And forget that apology from Friday night. Mercifully, the polar vortex has receded, and there has been a wild temperature swing upward in the upper Midwest, Chicago, Milwaukee, and parts north. A swing of almost 70 degrees, whereby a 40-degree day feels like summer compared to the negative 25, 28, negative 30 they experienced last week. There are some great viral videos out there about how cold it was. One of the ones I saw was a frozen pair of pants being thrown into the air. And it's flipping and flipping in slow motion. I would assume these are jeans that are soaking wet that were taken outside and quickly froze stiff. But the girl in the video throws them up in the air. They do like three flips and then land with the frozen creased cuffs, boop, right in the snow, standing straight up. number of other people have taken hot water, and they've taken it outside and thrown hot water into the air and watch it crystallize into vapors before it even hits the ground at minus 20, 25 degrees. God, unbelievable. The biggest thing is my boy Gitter reported to me that his beer inside his beer fridge, outside in the garage, no casualties. Thank God for that. No casualties, and everyone is safe. The beer fridge insulated at 34 degrees, uh, or whatever it's set to, 40, I guess, would be the number. It insulated the even colder negative 20 on the outside. No beers blew up. No beers are gone. Safe to say. Hopefully, you up there made it through okay. But if there is stories of mayhem or things that went wrong or things that froze or pipes that burst, let me know. I will I will read your boo-hoo, oh, my God, it was so cold, my blank, dot, 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 happened. Starting next year, the Washington Nationals, or starting this spring, 
the Washington Nationals will prohibit fans from bringing backpacks into games. They say this is to help speed up the entry process because inspecting backpacks with tons of different pockets and containers and compartments is cumbersome, but they also say it's a fan safety issue. Really, it's a case of we want to squeeze more money out of fans for our concessions so you don't bring that bag of nuts or that bottle of water that's hidden or whatever snacks you want to bring in to watch a baseball game. People are bellyaching about it. From a practicality standpoint, it shouldn't be that hard to do. They now make clear stadium bags, so to speak, stadium bags that you can see through and it's very easy to inspect them. They don't have a ton of pockets. But that defeats the purpose of bringing in stuff you want to eat and not get gouged at the ballpark while watching the good old baseball game. I don't know how you people do it. And by you people, I mean people that pay money for tickets and go to games. I don't, I don't know how you do it. God bless you for doing it. It's almost like teams go out of their way to try to make you to say, I'm not going back to the game. I'll just watch it on TV. I mean, I like going to the game, but and if you, if you do go to a lot of games, you might say, you know what, I'm only going to go to half as many or a quarter as many games. Other fans have said, and I read this in the comments to the story itself, that you know, one guy said, I went to you know, downtown, you know, the, uh, went to a Wizards game downtown right after work, and my messenger bag or my, not backpack, but it was kind of like a, a briefcase with a sling over it, didn't quite fit into their little box that says you got to fit. If you're going to bring a bag in as a fan, it's got to fit in this box. Otherwise, you can't get in. And the guy said he had to complain to three different levels of management to let him in, even though he was able to cram that briefcase into their little box. They were like, nah, it really doesn't count because you're squishing it in there. And this fan said, I thought the point of having a downtown arena like Capital One Arena, was such that, you know, you could co- go to a game right after work. And if I'm going to a game right after work, I'm going to have work stuff with me, like my backpack or my briefcase or my passenger bag or passenger sling, whatever it is. Again, I understand they got to be concerned about security. I understand they got to make it so people can get in in a timely fashion. I understand that we're running a business here. We have to make money on $8 pretzels. But at the same time, man, people are just looking for reasons to say, I don't need this. Why would teams give them anything to act on that thought? The NBA has had quite a week right opposite the lead-up to the Super Bowl. The Chris Porzingis trade was the biggest bombshell of them all. Porzingis saying one day, I think Monday or Tuesday, you know what, I don't trust the Knicks, I want out. And then the next day, the Knicks are like, okay, fine, here's the trade, done, boom, gone to Dallas. That was a huge one right there. The Anthony Davis saga with the Lakers, and the Lakers offering reportedly a, quote, low ball offer for him, and now the trade deadline clock ticking, tick, 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 tick. Now you've got Kyrie Irving, who earlier this year said, you know what, Boston, I'm coming back if you'll have me. A vow of support to the Boston Celtics. 
Then Kyrie Irving saying, you know, I called LeBron James to apologize to him for not understanding how difficult it is to be the leader and the front man for a, for a team. And then this week, Kyrie Irving, after all this stuff starts going down, said, I don't owe shit to anybody. I don't owe anybody shit, I think is what he said, saying he will test the waters come this summer, July 1st. <laughs> Fun week. Fun league. And then on top of that, you had the intrigue of the fact that some guys like Charles Barkley are calling for Commissioner Adam Silver to veto any possible trade of Anthony Davis to the Lakers because, hello, Anthony Davis's agent is the same agent for one LeBron James. And so you have basically collusion of a sorts, although I guess it's not really collusion, but, you know, it's just, it's a bad look. Davis was fined $50,000 as well for saying publicly, I want to be traded. I'm not going to resign here in New Orleans. He would be giving up the chance for a Supermax contract of $240 million over six years. That's $40 million per. That's insane. And while there's a good chance he'll eventually get that much money somewhere else, something tells me that the way that the Bryce Harper and Manny Machado thing is going, any athlete should look long and hard at, am I really going to get more money later? At some point, won't the music stop or at least pause? Shouldn't I think about, um, I'd like to play for a winner, but realistically, I'm not going to turn down a Supermax extension of $240 million. Shaquille O'Neal basically said that. He's like, man, hey, bro, I would have stayed in New Orleans for that, bro. But, now Anthony Davis's dad is saying he doesn't want his son to go to the Boston to Boston to the Celtics. Sorry, the airplanes are very loud outside my door. I don't know if you can hear that or not. Uh, his dad is getting in the mix, saying, "I don't want to go to Boston because Boston wasn't loyal to Isaiah Thomas." Well, getting out of the Isaiah Thomas business, not only with the injuries, but also the fact that he was more of a novelty act than a frontline NBA star, looks like he was absolutely the right move. For Boston. But dad is like, no, you got to be loyal. And there is a certain bit of, oh, that is rich. When you think about, here's a guy with a year and a half left on his contract. Looking at a $240 million Supermax extension. And his dad is chirping about loyalty? Okay. Trade deadline. All-star game coming next week. And, well, we shall see what happens before then. I'll end my Super Bowl 53 Zabecast on this non-football story. Even when ditzy celebrities fuck up, they still have a chance to get paid a ton of money. Ariana Grande got a tattoo recently that was supposed to say seven rings in Japanese. However, people quickly noticed, and they looked at the little characters... And instead of saying Seven Rings, which is her new single, when translated, it said Japanese-style barbecue grill. (laughs) It reminds me of an old joke some comic once upon a time said, you know, these stupid Japanese tattoos. You know, you think it means something. You have no idea what it really means. It could mean, you know, uh, chicken combo number five. So... She tried to fix the tat by adding characters, but now 
people say the tattoo simply says Japanese barbecue finger. Japanese barbecue finger. So, because she's a celebrity and has a pretty big following, huge following on social media, a tattoo removal company, Laser Away, has offered her $1.5 million to have the tattoo removed. It would require that Ariana participate in one photo and video shoot at a Laser Away location. But the offer letter, signed by the company president, concludes with, Thank you, next tiny barbecue grill. Ariana Grande did tweet, I'll give you a million dollars if you get off my nuts. That's pretty funny. That's pretty funny. Japanese barbecue grill. That will do it from my beautiful room overlooking runway 6C here at Hartsfield Jackson International Airport where I've thoroughly enjoyed the air show from my balcony all week long for Super Bowl 53. It's back to D.C., back to more winter, no matter what Punxsutawney Phil said on February 2nd on Groundhog Day. Thank you for listening. Thanks for subscribing. And we will see you next time. Bye.